Welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. I'm Cheryl Nathan. This is a show about books and the people who write them. Each week, we feature conversations with top authors of fiction and nonfiction about their latest work. This week, William Dietrich joins us to tell us about his latest in the swashbuckling adventure Ethan Gage series, The Barbary Pirates, published by Harper, an imprint of HarperCollins. Sharon Drew Morgan is up next to share secrets of selling and buying in her latest book, Dirty Little Secrets, Why Buyers Can't Buy, Sellers Can't Sell, and What You Can Do About It. New York Times best-selling author William Dietrich is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He's also a historian and a naturalist. He's the winner of the PNBA Award for Fiction, and he's a contributing writer to the Seattle Times. He's also a professor of journalism for his lucky students at Western Washington University. William's with us today to talk about his new novel, The Barbary Pirates. William, welcome. Uh, Thank you, Cheryl. Now, do you like William or Bill? Uh, Bill to my friends. Uh, William, if I'm trying to get people to recognize my name on the book cover. I love it. (laughs) That's what an author should say. And it's William Dietrich in big gold letters on the front of that book cover. Well, I'll call you Bill if you don't mind, and we'll be friends. That would be fine. The first thing I'd like for us to do, this is quite a rollicking journey that you take us on in the Barbary Pirates. Let's let our listeners in by giving them just a thumbnail sketch of what the book is about. And this, then let's talk about some specifics, because you've done a fascinating job with this. Yeah, the uh, Barbary Pirates is a historical thriller. It's uh, based uh, in the Napoleonic era, back in about 1802. Uh, and it involves a hero I invented in some earlier uh, books called Ethan Gage. He's a American adventurer. He gets wrapped up in... Uh, Napoleon's Egyptian and Middle Eastern campaigns. He has some adventures on the frontier. And then in this book, he's back in uh, Paris and uh, eventually the Mediterranean and gets wrapped up with the Barbary pirates just at the time that the United States was going to war with them. Uh, But what Ethan is really after is to try to find and rescue his uh, long-lost love uh, and to... uh, complete a quest for Napoleon, which is to find out if there is an ancient super weapon that's been hidden in the Mediterranean and uh, whether uh, he can keep that out of the hands of the pirates. You have woven fact and fiction so beautifully in this novel. And it's like the voyage of Odysseus. I mean, we just go all over the place in this book. How much research did you do into the historical background and how much of it is really real? A surprising amount is real. You know, I have a background as a journalist. I really enjoy learning things and enjoy sharing what I learn with readers. And so uh, these books uh, do require a a lot of in-depth research. I travel uh, to the places that I write about. And what I'm trying to do is kind of create a time machine experience for people so that they feel that, uh, you know, they're not just getting the politics, but a little bit of the experience of what it might have been to be alive in that time. And so research not just into the major events, but uh, everyday life and and what it was like to uh, live and so on. 
And uh, in, the odd thing about the Ethan Gage books is some of the weirdest things that I talk about uh, are actually true. And an, ex- an example on the Barbary Pirates is their use of an early submarine invented by uh, Robert Fulton called the Nautilus. Uh, this submarine actually existed. It was uh, built uh, for the French Navy. It was tested off the coast of France and so on. And so I had great fun imagining them uh, taking this machine and then putting it uh, f- for use in, in their adventure. Uh, besides having Robert Fulton as a character, I have some other real-life scientists, a guy named uh, Georges Cuvier, a prominent French zoologist, uh, William Smith, who was the uh, father of English uh, geology. And so it was great fun to read the straightforward biographies of these gentlemen and then sort of have the conceit of uh, bringing them into a swashbuckling adventure. Well, and I find my, found myself at the very beginning of the novel when you introduced the people who are going to be on this adventure with Ethan Gage. I thought, Robert Fulton? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I found myself reacting because, of course, his name was the name that I recognized the most readily. And then as you read through the book, you weave the, the character's history, and we find out who the characters are because of what they do in the book. And so my assumption is that that's based on the research that you did into who these people are. Absolutely. I try to capture their personality and, and put them you know, to use in, in some sort of probable way. And Fulton, in particular, was a fascinating man. Uh, he is the inventor of the first commercial steamboat in the United States, of course. But before that, he went to France, went to the revolutionary government, because he thought that they would be more open to his ideas than uh, Britain or America was. And so he tried to sell them on this idea of a submarine. Uh, you know, he did succeed in, in, in building one. And the French Minister of Marine actually uh, decided that that was too sneaky of a way to conduct warfare. And so turned the submarine down. And I dismantled Fulton submarine, really? Yes, yes. They just uh, took it apart. But in my novel, of course, he sort of uh, scoots it down to uh, the southern French coast where it can be. Uh, used by Ethan and his friends. Well, there's a, a legend in there as well. Napoleon, of course, plays a, a not a. I mean, we see him and we see him interact with Ethan Gage, and there's a story that he tells about the little red man. And yes. That's a French myth. And yes. The, the incident with Napoleon and this this mythical character actually happened. Yes, I was reading biographies of Napoleon, and this kept coming up, and I said, what? You know, I had never heard of this before, but there is this uh, French legend of a gnome-like figure, the Little Red Man, who appears to uh, French royalty and uh, key figures like Napoleon at uh, crucial points in history, and uh, makes prophecies. And so Napoleon related to uh, uh, later biographers that he had actually... Uh, seen this red man that he had forecasted he would have uh, success for about a decade and then uh, problems afterwards and so on. And so I couldn't resist uh, bringing that story uh, into the novel. And so when Ethan meets uh, Napoleon at his uh, uh, home of uh, Melmaison outside of uh, Paris, uh, they talk about this, and it gives uh, just a little bit of a spooky tinge, I think, to the action that follows. I agree. Now, this is swashbuckling. We're talking about the historical facts right now, but the novel is absolutely packed with action, and it would not be so action-packed if it weren't for two things. 
we have a love interest or two going on in this, and then the Egyptian Rite. Tell me about the Egyptian Rite. This is a real organization as well. It was. There was a uh, magician or con man uh, named uh, Cagliostro who was active in the uh, 18th century, in the the, uh, 1700s. And in England, he founded something called the Egyptian Rite, which was sort of a corruption of Freemasonry. And it was scandalous at the time that they were supposed to have these secret ceremonies and sort of erotic ceremonies and so on. And, and uh, it was, you know, very much sort of on the edge of society. And uh, yeah, he created this thing, and then it sort of faded away. But I, in my novels, uh, I've taken this and uh, dis- uh, decided that I would have it uh, persist and uh, actually be sort of a secret uh, organization that's trying to collect secrets from the ancient world. Uh, so that was uh, a thread that uh, ran through uh, earlier Ethan uh, novels such as Napoleon's Pyramids and the Rosetta Key. And so in this book, uh, they're back. And this time they, as well as the pirates, are after uh, the mirror of Archimedes, which is an ancient Greek uh, death ray. And uh, these people are convinced that it actually uh, not only did exist, but that it still exists and that they can find it somewhere. I like the Egyptian rite. They, they are perfect foil because they can pop up anywhere and they look like anyone else and they are keys throughout the novel in certain places to finding the treasures that we're trying to uncover and the the mirror of Archimedes is another one of the things that you've woven in that has reality based in history yes uh, Archimedes was a Greek mathematician. Uh, he lived in the Greek colony of uh, Syracuse on the island of Sicily, and it got caught up in the war between the Romans and the Carthaginians. And so when the Romans besieged the city, legend has it that Archimedes uh, constructed this gigantic mirror that could focus the sun's rays on Roman galleys and set them on fire. So I've always been fascinated by that story and wanted to uh, bring it into this book. Uh, it's interesting that in more modern times, people have tried to uh, recreate such a mirror, and they've had kind of a mixed uh, success. Uh, they built one successfully in Athens, and MIT put one together that also worked. But then the uh, Mythbusters television show tried it, and it didn't work quite as well, and so on. So it's uh, people have been intrigued by this thing for 2,000 years. Now, you have a female villain that we've met, obviously, in past novels she is involved with the egyptian rite and she is in and out of ethan's life in this novel i mean she all of a sudden she'll pop up and and she seems to have this love hate relationship going on with him she she wants him but at the same time she's she's a villain and so she's so angry with him and she's not a very nice person no, Aurora Somerset is a wonderful villainess to uh, play with. Uh, an English aristocrat, uh, Ethan first met her on the uh, American-Canadian frontier. Uh, he was trying to seduce her. She was trying to seduce him, and, and they were sort of trying to use each other. Ethan's a bit of a rogue, a bit of a, a rake. Uh, I've a lot, he's a got a little bit of a comic edge to him, so I have fun with him as a character. And so, uh, you know, he makes the classic mistake of uh, getting involved with the wrong woman. And now she has come back into his life. Uh, She has linked up with the Barbary Pirates, 
And uh, once again, she has uh, an idea of how to use Ethan Gage. And so uh, throughout the story, he's going to you know, not only have to uh, save the world, but uh, also uh, defeat Aurora if he's uh, going to save the other woman in his life, whose name is Estiza. And you're very funny. I mean, you're very funny. I found myself, you're reading these situations, and all of a sudden, Ethan Gage will have some sort of flash. And, <laughs> and I found myself <laughs> laughing out loud because there'll be something really inappropriate. You know, there's one scene where there's something going on, and there's the big fire in the in the, the brothel, and one of the, the uh, prostitutes leans over, and you have a flash where Ethan Gage goes, and she had quite a fine backside or something like that. I mean, it's just, <laughs> you're very funny. And those asides fit perfectly into the dialogue, and it makes it feel like real life because we have those kinds of flashes in our own brains. And I love that about the character of Ethan Gage and your humor. Yeah, I've always loved adventure stories where there's a lot of exciting things going on, but there also is, is a little bit of levity and uh, you know, Indiana Jones or Star Wars or Robin Hood or, or some of the versions of the Three Musketeers or, you know, any number of stories you can think of that uh, uh, sort of do that. So I've tried to bring that into these novels uh, as well. Uh, it's a way to have some fun. And it's also a way to allow Ethan to sort of comment on the world he has. I mean, he is, you know, the modern reader's sort of eyes as to what Napoleon was like or what the pirates were like or what uh, Venice was like and so on. And so, you know, we can give him kind of this wry modern outlook uh, that I think makes the uh, uh, environment a little bit more understandable. I agree. And I like that you gave him a, quote, sensitive side as well, because Estiza is someone about whom he really cares deeply. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and which is uh, surprises himself. I mean, he <clears throat> starts out in the books as uh, sort of a self-centered, uh, rather uh, directionless individual. And, you know, people kind of uh, scold him or kid him about that. He's always trying to live up to the maxims of Benjamin Franklin, his uh, or- original mentor, and, and falling well short. And yet, underneath that, he's a he's a good guy, and he's even an earnest guy. He's trying to do the right thing. Uh, he wants to fall in love. He wants to uh, really build a life for himself. And so in the Barbary Pirates, he, he grows up a little bit. He learns he has a, a son that he didn't know he had and uh, decides that he has to uh, take a little bit more responsibility for things. And Estiza has named the son Horace, which is quite a fine hero name, but Ethan will have none of that, so he shortens it to Harry, which I thought was so <laughs> cute and clever. Yeah. The, the book is so much fun to read, but at the same time, because of the research that you've done into the historical background, we learn things as we read through the book. I had no idea that Archimedes had invented a mirror that could have been used to burn up ships. I had no idea about Fulton and the Nautilus. I didn't know he'd done that, and I certainly didn't know that he'd try to sell it to France. So not only did I enjoy myself, but I learned something at the same time. William, thank you. This has been a great book to read. Well, I appreciate that, and that's what I'm trying to do is is entertain people and, and maybe educate them a little bit at the same time. If our listeners want to know more about you, more about your work, some of the previous books that you've mentioned, is there a website that they can go to? 
Yes, my website is uh, williamdietrich.com. Uh, Dietrich is spelled D-I-E-T-R-I-C-H. And uh, that has all my books and uh, background on myself and so on. Uh, there's also some information on me on the HarperCollins uh, website and, and actually on several places on the Internet now. Well, you have been delightful. I loved the book. It is such a terrific read. I would encourage any of our listeners who enjoy nonstop action to pick up a copy of The Barbary Pirates. And thank you for being our guest today on Inside the Writer's Cafe. Cheryl, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. You're listening to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. New York Times business best-selling author Sharon Drew Morgan has been a journalist, a social worker, a probation officer, a sales director, a stockbroker on Wall Street, and an insurance agent. She was also the founder of a nonprofit organization called the Dystonia Society, and that's an organization that supports people with the muscle disorder dystonia. She's with us today to talk about her new book, Dirty Little Secrets, Why Buyers Can't Buy, Sellers Can't Sell, and What You Can Do About It. Sharon Drew, welcome. Oh, thank you. That was a great introduction. I'd forgotten I'd done all those things. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. I read those and I thought, wow, this woman has a nice, varied background. <laughs> let's but, give our listeners a little overview of the book, and then let's talk about some specifics, because this is a fascinating idea. What I figured out along the way, and as you saw, I had all kinds of jobs before I became a salesperson. What I figured out along the way was that the problem I had as a salesperson was that I was taught how to do needs analysis and solution placement, but I never managed the offline stuff that buyers do. I never even knew it was needed until I went to England and started up a company and realized what the problem was, that the salespeople were not addressing the problems I was having with my soon-to-be ex-husband and the investors that kept dropping in. And, and so I wrote a book about the change management issues that go on within the buying journey, the buyer's decision process, the buyer's environment, that are offline to us as salespeople, that are behind the scenes, often unintelligible even to the buyer when they start off their journey of finding a solution. And no one in sales has addressed this offline, behind-the-scenes buying decision journey that has nothing to do with a solution. So I wrote a book about how to help the salesperson help the buyer navigate through all the decision issues they have to address before they can buy. And in this book, you've done a really nice job of dividing this up into the buyer's world, the seller's world, and then at the end, you say, okay, the skills. How do you put this all together? That's so right. Let's sort of start at the beginning. Let's talk a little bit about the buyer's world. Okay. That's my favorite conversation. I love it. Good. <laughs> um Let's talk about systems for just a minute. Uh, you know, most of the book is about how change happens, and it's really kind of a change management book. There's actually people in the change management field that are that are kind of liking the, the book, too. Um, a system is any group of interdependent bits 
that agree to a similar set of rules. Okay, will you will you go with me on that definition? I'll agree one hundred percent. Okay, whatever exists within a system is fine by all the interdependent bits, or they wouldn't have agreed to it. So let's say I'm overweight. Well, my system has agreed to that, so that means I have bigger clothes, and I allow myself an extra piece of pizza, and I take the car instead of walking. So I have developed a way to maintain my status quo, whether it's a good status quo or not, because the system doesn't care. I mean, when I put on a pair of pants, my body doesn't look whether it's a size 10 or size 12 or size 6. It's their pants. Buyers do the same thing. They live within a system of rules and people and relationship that just exist where they are. And it doesn't see one piece as a problem. It just is. And if there's a piece of technology needed, well, they bring somebody over from another department or they they do a little work around the technology that they've got, and it all works well enough. What happens is we may find something isn't working well enough anymore, or a salesperson might point out something isn't working well enough anymore. And at that point, we have a problem because in order to change one part of a system, everything around it gets discombobulated. Um, my metaphor is like when we use a um, – remember the pickup sticks when we were little? I don't know if you were that old, but we had pickup sticks. I do, yes. And you had to get to the black one. Yes. And the black one would help you with all the other ones, but you first had to get to the darn thing to begin with. And it always fell on the bottom. And it was always, yeah. and then you, by the time you got, you couldn't even get there because you made your mistake before you got there. Well, exactly. that's like where the buyer's problem is. It's in the middle. It's the black one in the pickup sticks. And the the bigger problem with sales is that it only handles needs assessment and solution placement. And so it can talk to you about the black one, and it can talk that there's a red one on top of it and a green one next to it, but it doesn't deal with the other 27 that are on top of it that you can't even get to the red one, the green one, or the black one until you deal with the other 27. So sales does not give the buyer the ability. It doesn't help the buyer navigate through all the internal stuff that they have to take care of. Um, I recently got a call from the head of a um, one of the largest banks in Europe, and they wanted me to add a front-end piece of technology to a huge piece of technology they're doing. And it's, it's a million-dollar-plus deal. And other salespeople that I've asked just for fun, I say, if you got a call saying, Sharon Drew, can you do this? What do you say? Oh, yeah, I need to gather more data. I'm going to fly out there, and I'm going to spend a few days with you. We'll get to meet everybody and nicey-nicey and data-data. And then you come back and you do a proposal. And then they say no. They always exactly. say no proposals. But what I did was as soon as they called, I said, well, what's stopping your tech team from doing it for you? Because the first part of my job is to help them figure out how their system is going to actually make room for, buy into, and agree with something new. Because if you bring in anything new to anything, it disrupts everything, right? Yes, every so, time. So if I were to go in there and just fly in and say, oh, my stuff is great, there would be a tech team problem and there would be a consulting group problem and there would be a, an internal training problem and there would be a user problem. There would be all kinds of problems. So 
I said, what's stopping your tech team from doing it for you? And he said, ah, that's the bigger problem. He said, because they think they can, and they've been reading all your books, trying to figure out how to put something on their front end like you would do it. Well, if I had just been gathering data, I wouldn't have known that. Right. But, but, of course, when you're thinking in systems, they want to use their internal group before they use me. It's well, cheaper because all they're already on site and already understand the business, right? That's right. And there's buy-in, and they're part of the system. Exactly. I'm an external part of the system. I don't fit. So the next question I said was, again, I'm working on the on my buying facilitation model, the decision facilitation piece that the, these people have to figure out. And I can't do it for them because I'm an outsider, aren't I? So I said, huh, interesting. So how would you and your buying decision team know that working with me directly would give you a different capability than what your tech team could come up with from my books? Right? Isn't that the question? Because if they tell everybody that they did what I would do, what is it? Their team doesn't know. They'll just believe them. So so the guy said, huh, you're right. I guess we have no way of knowing that. And I said, so what would you all need to be doing to understand the difference between what I would do and what your tech team would do? And he said, well, we need to have a meeting. So he put together a large meeting with the head of technology, head of retail banking, the head of tech, uh, technology uh, consulting, coaching, and then the CEO of this bank got online and said, with all you big players online, I want to see what kind of trouble you're getting into. Anyway, so that's just, I, I'm actually telling that whole story on a podcast I'm putting out today about the buyer's journey. Um, so it'll be on my, on my uh, blog post. But the point is that there is an entire array of rules and relationships and people and promises and history and feelings that are offline to us as salespeople. And we can't get there because we're not part of it. We're not part of their system. We'll never understand it. And instead of sitting and waiting for them to do it, which they must do before they buy anything, why not add a new skill set to our jobs and help them? I have one other thing um, I want to talk about because the Internet is an interloper right now. The Internet is taking over a lot of the jobs that salespeople have done. And salespeople who only ever had a 7% closing rate, which is abysmal, now are having less than that because they're not even closing half of their sales. More than, more than half of salespeople are not meeting their quota mm-hmm. because of the way buyers are now buying. So they're not even going to have a job anymore. Why not give them an additional set of skills to become real trusted advisors and help the buyer navigate through these offline decisions, and then they're right in place with their solution? Well, let's go into that. I mean, that's a perfect segue to head into the seller's world, and let's give some of our people who maybe are salespeople or who are perhaps starting their new career or looking for a new job, some of those skills, how do they sell to help the buyer buy, which I really like that. That's a a different way to think about this. How do you sell to help the buyer buy? Well, the first thing is to 
actually not consider everyone a prospect. One of the big problems that we have is when we see a client with a need and we have the solution, we assume they're a prospect. That would be like um, a gym guy, salesperson calling me with a cheap membership. If I'm now I, I'm slender, so I don't have this problem, so I'm just using this example. But let's say I'm overweight, and this gym membership guy calls me and says, um, "Oh, I saw you on the street. Um, we've got a cheap membership for you because he could see the problem, couldn't he? And he had the solution, didn't he? He assumes I'm a prospect." But I would have to, let's say, change my eating habits and decide to be a healthy person and get my husband to wake up at 5.30 in the morning to feed the kids um, so that I could go to the gym. There's a whole array of systemic issues involved in maintaining my, my overweight or whatever it would be. And it's not about my need or the solution. And salespeople have a tendency to assume because there's a need and they've got the solution, there's a prospect, and that's not true. So, number one, don't assume that every place you see a need, there's a solution. There's a, there's a, a, a chance they're going to buy from you. Number two, start off with assuming that it's your job to help them navigate through the decision issues that they have to handle before they can buy or choose or change. Um, I've got a, an article coming out soon in one of the big change management magazines called Buy-In, A Radical Approach to Change Management. Everybody has to buy in. And making a purchase is a change management problem. Making a purchase is a change management problem. It's not an isolated event. Salespeople think because there's a, they have the right solution that then there's a problem that it's an isolated event. It's like the black stick in, in uh, uh, pickup sticks is sitting by itself on the side of the box. It's not an isolated event. It's incorporated into everything else. So one of the biggest things for salespeople is to recognize that the solution placement is the very, very, very last thing that needs to happen. And in order to get a leg up on today's new buying journey, which has everything to do with the Internet, the seller needs a new toolkit, which is decision facilitation. Otherwise, the, the sales job will be totally co-opted by the Internet, and the sales job is going to go the way of newspapers and magazines. And we could talk about decision facilitation and facilitated questions, but you and I both agreed before we started the interview that that's way too complicated for people to really understand in a short interview like this because we've only got about a minute or two left. But I think that's one of the really important things in the book that people would be interested in. If they want to know more about the buying facilitation method, if they want to know more about facilitative questions, decision facilitation. I know you have a wonderful website. Let's give them that website address. Okay, I've got a great blog post that everyone loves called SharonDreamWorgen.com. And I have a, a website um, that gives information about um, buying facilitation and training programs and, and available learning models and so forth um, at NewSalesParadigm.com. So SharonDrewMorgan.com, I write four times a week, God help me, and on uh, there's podcasts and all kinds of interesting things on there, and then um, NewSalesParadigm.com. If you can leave our listeners with a bottom line message, Sharon Drew, 
What would you like to leave them with? I have a question. Would you rather sell or have someone buy? Because they are two different activities. And right now, we've only been handling one. The question I'll leave you with is, what would you need to know or believe differently to be willing to add a new skill set to what you're doing to be even more successful? Sharon Drew Morgan, you have been delightful. Thank you so much for being our guest today on Inside the Writer's Cafe and sharing your dirty little secrets. <laughs> thank you so much. It was a great interview. And we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. And remember, until you join us next time, pick up a good book and read. <laughs> <laughs>